Revilla talks about the challenges even he had trying to blend in in Mexico City. Uh, that area where the where the facility was is down the more of the heart of Mexico City. Remember, Mexico City is huge, mm-hmm. 22 million people. And I wanted to be out there, like walk in the in the people, and they said, "You're nuts. You're crazy. They'll single you out in half a second." I go, even the way I look, I look Mexican national. It didn't matter. The way you dress, mm-hmm. the way you move, where you walk. Forget the way you speak Spanish. I mean, I would get in a cab in Mexico City, and the cab would say "Buenos dias," and I would say, uh, "Aonde vas?" Like, where are you going? "Buenos dias, aeropuerto." And the second word from is, "Oh, you're from the north." Welcome to Game of Crimes. Everybody, welcome back to the best podcast on the interwebs, the best true crime podcast and the best podcast hosts. I being one of them, Morgan Wright, here with literally with my partner in crime. Steve Murphy, welcome back, everybody, and please call me Murph. Call him Murph. You can call me Mr. Murph, as Sidney Poitier, who recently passed, you can call me Mr. Tibbs. Yep. Just what don't call great- me late for dinner. Don't call me late for dinner. Uh, Guess who's coming to dinner? That was another movie he was in. So, hey, guys, thanks for joining us. Um, We're going to get into talking about the episode from last week and here in just a minute. But guess what, guys? Real quickly, head on over to Apple. Head on over to Spotify. Hit those five stars. Let us know what you think of us. Tell us. Give us some feedback. Just anything. Anything that you do helps us come up through the rankings, you know, and helps us get this podcast out to the people who need to hear it, which we think is everybody on the globe. Mm-hmm. You know, seven billion, what twenty-two billion potential people. There's the galaxies. We we haven't even talked about Uranus yet, <laughs> and I hope we don't. <laughs> and I hope we don't. Okay, so head on over there. Also, head on over to our website, GameOfCrimesPodcast.com, for everything. Our new book list is out there. So guess what, guys? We've got books. Our guest that we'll be talking about today has got a book out too. You just got to go. So hit that stuff up. Um, we've got our uh, live events, our mailing list. Follow us on the social media at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. But where you got to be is patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. We have got fun stuff out there. We've got commitment now from Chris Feistel, who was on a previous episode, who talked about the Cali Cartel, which was season three of Narcos. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you and JP were season one and two. And so we're going to get him and his partner. Who's his partner again, Murph? Dave Mitchell. And he, if you remember in, in, uh, in the series Narcos, when they're doing the Cali cartel, you know who Chris is, the guy with him, that's Dave Mitchell. Yeah. And we're going to talk about what the fuck were they doing in that field? Oh my gosh, (laughs) man. They were doing things that Javier and I weren't doing. (laughs) Oh, crazy shit, man. So we're going to, we're going to, you, and you're going to hear the real story. Not what Netflix is great. But Netflix is not the real story. It is right. a story. The real story comes from these guys. So follow us going go over there to Patreon. Um, our new uh, segment that we do called 911, What's Your Emergency? We got a new episode that's going to be coming out too. So you're going to have to listen to that. We just got great stuff coming up there. So head on over to patreon.com slash game of crimes. Also, paypal.com. Use our email, game of crimes podcast at gmail.com or paypal.me slash Game of Crimes, whatever it makes it easier for you to support the show and help us bring you even more exciting content. But got to give you a quick disclaimer. This is a show about crime. We talk about bad people doing bad things and bad people doing bad things to good people. We take the story seriously, but... As you've already seen, we never take ourselves serious. We're going to have some fun. Yeah, and let me tell you, fun um, was was last week. You know, um, you know we just... 
I'm, I'm telling you, I don't know how we get a lot of these episodes, but, um, you know, Rich Moraz was such just a, such a great episode. Yep. You know, um, just like you said, the authenticity and transparency got a lot of feedback. Guys, it's the real deal. You know, he he took it in the shorts. But I'm very excited now about what we've got coming up because this one, th- this is something a lot of people have heard about and a lot of people don't actually have the real story. We got into a lot of the real story. And this is the anniversary of the shooting of Agent Jaime Zapata of ICE, Immigrations and Customs Enforcement, along with his partner who was shot and wounded, uh, Victor Avila, by the Los Zetas Cartel. Uh, It's got a book out there. You can go to the website, agentunderfirebook.com. We actually have the book on our website. And Steve, I'm telling you, when we talked to Victor, I remember in the last episode, you talked about, just like with Rich, how emotional people get. Mm -hmm. And when we start talking about, and we're doing this on Valentine's Day for a couple reasons. Number one, because what could have been his last dinner that he missed and his kids did something special for him. You're going to have to listen to the episode. Yeah. I mean, choked Victor up big time. Right. Um, what an it, end, what a great story. And, and we're doing this episode in memory of Jaime Zapata, the ICE agent that was killed down there that day, uh, who was with Victor. But uh, wait till you, as the, the story itself is unbelievable, but wait till you happen, uh, hear what happens afterwards to Victor how his own agency treats him afterwards. And that's the thing that just sticks in my throat. You know, you may hear us get a little ticked off when we talk about that part, but I'm hoping it ticks you off too, because it's just, it's unfounded, it's unjust what he lived through. So let us know what you think about it. That's right. Well, let me know what you think about this, because before we get into the good stuff, we got to get into the fun stuff. Yeah. Because again, we take the show seriously, but we never what? Never take ourselves serious. And one of the ways we don't take ourselves serious is how? We are. We have a special slot for what we call small, small town, town police blotter. Now we kind of went out of order. I don't care. It's a podcast. Just roll with it, folks. So <laughs> we've got some great stuff coming up, Murph, because it is Valentine's Day. And guess what? Nothing says Valentine's like uh, Heather Kirkwood from our Game of Crimes uh, fan uh, from our group there sent us a note that comes from the Boyles County Sheriff's Office. It is, it is, it was a Facebook post, but I thought it was very good. It's called Valentine's Day Weekend Special. Do you have an ex-Valentine and know they have outstanding warrants? Do you have information that they are driving with drugs in their car? Give us a call with their location and we'll take care of the rest. This Valentine's Day Weekend Special starts off with a set of limited edition platinum bracelets, free transportation with a chauffeur, and a one-night minimum stay in luxurious five-star accommodations and professional glamour shots that will be posted online for all to enjoy. This special is capped off with a special Valentine's dinner. I've been in the jails. It's not special. We know this is special. It is so incredible. You may be attempted to provide additional referrals. We don't blame you. This special is too sweet to pass up. Operators are standing by. <laughs> so- <laughs> I had seen that. That was that's very uh, uh, unique. That's very ingenious. And I'll tell you what. What, agency, what agency did that? At Boyle County Sheriff's Office. I'm not sure. I should have looked up Boyle County Sheriff's Office. Um, uh, hats off to him, man. That's hats hilarious. off, man. What, you got to have a little bit of humor, right? Got to have a little that's bit right. of humor with this. Well, that's speaking right. of just a little bit of humor, it's Valentine's Day, and you know, normally men, you know, do something special for their wives, right, Murph? Like I know you will, I will. Flowers, dinner, and stuff, right? Thank you for the well, reminder. <laughs> not this guy. <laughs> this guy is not getting the Valentine's Day award. An Edgewood man, reportedly or reported recently that his wife had gone missing 18 months ago. 
<laughs> That's very timely. I don't know, was he waiting on decomposition of the body or what? <laughs> Nothing says love like waiting a year and a half to report her missing. Well, you know, it was kind of quiet around the house, and I was enjoying myself, but then the underwear started piling up, and I didn't know what to do. <laughs> Maybe went on an extended fishing and hunting trip, you know, and when he got back, she was gone. Oh, my God. Unbelievable. Uh, why, uh, would, why would you even report it, you know? I don't know. Well, I don't know. But, hey, we have a follow-on story, Murph. This comes to us from Tracy Jacobs okay. via our Game of Crimes fan group. All right. So uh, I don't remember which episode it was, but we talked about this guy in Alabama who had an attack, attack squirrel he fed meth. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, uh. Limestone County, Alabama, an Alabama man who was arrested in 2019 for keeping and training an attack squirrel by giving it meth now faces new charges. Mickey Polk, 39, was originally arrested in June 2019 and charged with possession of a wild animal. Shit, no shit if it's on meth. <laughs> Stolen property and possession of weapon by a felon. Police allege Paul, or Polk gave the squirrel, which he named D's Nuts, meth so it would be more aggressive. Well, guess what? They encountered the squirrel during a raid of Paul's uh, uh, residence. Speaking with the Associated Press, Paul claims to have the squirrel since it was a baby and would never give it meth. So his trial was set to start on January 24th, but it's been postponed to February 28th. He will also be facing additional charges. Why? Because he was arrested again on December 23rd, including trafficking in methamphetamine, chemical endangerment of a child, along with some other weapon and drug charges. This dude, he's a fucking nut. He's a POS, piece of shit. <laughs> oh my God. You know what? And you watch, and if he's found guilty of all these charges, he'll probably get the most time out of endangering the animals the than he will endanger people. <laughs> Let, let me tell you, just before we got on this podcast, I'm looking out here because I got bird feeders around, and I found a squirrel in one of my bird feeders. Now, those little terrorists, now, I'm nice. <laughs> I trap them and let them go. I don't kill them. I trap them and let them go, but they are. Make no mistake. They are terrorists. Little damn terrorists. All right. So, anyway. That's funny. I know. Well, hey, look, um, this episode is important for a couple reasons. Number one, because we are going to talk about Victor Avila and the shooting that happened. But the other thing too is like you said, we wanted to talk about Jaime Zapata and he was an ICE agent that was killed. And this is the anniversary of that. So, um, this was, he died on February 15th, 2011. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, Victor, when we talked to Victor, the last dinner he had it, unknown to him, it might've been his last dinner was February 14th with his kids. As we talked about, you know, it's just going to be, uh, it's going to be a heart, it's going to be a heart tugger and stuff. So, um, this, this, I mean, he's got, he's got his book out there called agent under Um, it's a great read, but when you hear his story, you'll find out how this guy partner killed. He was severely wounded, um, by the Los Zetas cartel, by the way, Steve, right? Uh, not not the Boy Scouts, right? A freaking oh. dangerous cartel, right? Absolutely. One of the most dangerous it's ever been. Maybe the most dangerous cartel in Mexico. Unbelievable what they did to these guys. And then, and then I mean, <laughs> you got to listen to the after story about how the Mexican authorities first tried to cover it up while Victor's in the hospital getting initial treatment. And then the aftermath from his own agency. So this is this is one for the record books here. This is unbelievable what you're getting ready to hear. And this will infuriate you. And the other thing, too, is uh, you got to stay tuned because Victor discloses new information that allows us to connect the dots oh, yeah. in a way that we had not thought, the way we did not know we were going to be able to connect these dots before. Because the real question comes down to, and you'll hear this in the episode, the ambassador said this highway 
is off limits. And the ambassador, as we've told you guys before, is the ultimate authority in the country. They are the representative of the president. Nobody operates in that country or does anything based on the U.S. government without the approval of the ambassador. Right. And the ambassador said, stay off this highway. So why were uh, Jaime and Victor on this highway? What did their supervisors tell them to do? What was the cargo? And mm-hmm. the real question is, what was the real cargo? Mm-hmm. And where is the inventory of that today? Those are questions we're going to find out from Victor. But before we can find out what Victor says, Steve, I've got to ask you once again, are you ready to play the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all? Hey, everybody, the game of crimes. When you listen to this episode, put yourself in Victor's place and think about what you would do. And this is really true when I say get in, sit down, shut up and hold on. Bring on the adventures of Victor Avila. Well, if the pre-call is any indication about how this show is going to go, we're going to have a good time because all I can tell you is that I'm Batman, or maybe I'm not Batman, but neither Batman or I have been in the room at the same time. But we are in the room with somebody who is a real superhero. He's a dude we've been wanting to get on the podcast, and we've got him on here. So, Victor Alavia, welcome. Bienvenidos. Thank you. Bienvenidos, amigo. Gracias, gracias. Thank you. It's, uh, it's an your, honor to be with you guys. How's your Spanish? Is it passable? Can you do okay? <laughs> oh, I'm 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 completely fluent. Uh, well, yeah. we'll see. We're going to test you here in a little bit. We have a couple words. We'll run by you. <laughs> I think he's got your name already. Not just the bad word. <laughs> hey, hey, <laughs> That's hey, the hey, easy hey. one. <laughs> I can say that too. Hey, Victor, this so anyway. is this is an explicit podcast, so feel free to call him whatever you need to call him. I have several <laughs> pet names. I can tell Victor's a nice guy. Victor's a nice guy. He's not going to say those scurrilous things that you have said in the past. So anyway, Victor, hey, welcome, man. I, you you have a busy schedule. In fact, we were just talking. We'll get into this towards the end, but you're running for Texas Land Commissioner in addition to the fact that you have – it's uh, the website's called agentunderfirebook.com. By the way, guys, I typed in the thing wrong, and I first thought, my God, he's 007. If you type in agentunderfire.com, it goes to the James Bond Facebook page. And there I'm you going, go. Hey, well, we, we got our own 007. Absolutely. (laughs) After what he went through, absolutely. Absolutely, man. So, hey, Victor. So, hey, again, welcome. Thanks for taking time because, like I said, you you are one busy man. Let's start off like we do with everybody. I mean, why the hell did you get into law enforcement? You know, tell us where you were growing up at and where the bug came from. I mean, how how many times were you arrested before 18? Is that how you got to meet the cops? You know, what's the deal? (laughs) Uh, Well, um, it it wasn't, you know, a lot of people say uh, I wanted to be a police officer. And I told my mom when I was four years old, that's not the way it happened with me. I, I did have, I grew up in El Paso, Texas, a border town. And heavily, heavily, uh, you know, there's a lot of presence of law enforcement, especially federal law enforcement at the border. Always been super, super busy. And uh, my first real contact with police officers when I was uh, 16 years old, I was an El Paso police explorer, which is attached to the uh, Boy Scouts the, and, and, that, and that system. And uh, they give you a uniform, you go with the police officers, you, you work the parades, you do crowd control, they teach you a lot of things, you go shooting, you do ride-alongs, you, you know, have lunch with the police officers. And really, um, you know, I grew up respecting the police, even being somewhat, you know, uh, uh, naturally afraid of them with the respect, you know, that boundary where, 
if you get pulled over, you, you do a certain thing. Uh, my parents really grew up, uh, when I grew up, really uh, had me respect law enforcement. And so I always did. Um, so when I got that exposure with them, it really revealed, the first of all, to me that, uh, as simple as it sounds, that police officers are just like us. They're just people mm-hmm. that have same problems. They still have to pay bills. They have divorces. They have children. They have no everyday lives. <laughs> just like us. Because, <laughs> you know, the way I grew up looking at law enforcement, it's kind of the way I grew up um, looking at teachers. That somehow I thought the teacher lived at the school. And the first time I saw my teacher at the grocery store, it, it freaked me out. What do you mean? The teacher eats? What are you doing here? Shops? Yeah. What the heck? <laughs> you know, that's that's kind of the way we grew up really looking up to uh, the law enforcement, the, the teachers and, and people in, in places of authority and really respecting them. But this uh, this uh, volunteer position, really, really, I really enjoyed it because uh, it exposed me to knowing them, to knowing them, uh, and really the behind the scenes of, of, of police work, that it wasn't just like the movies, that it that most of the police work is actually pretty boring um, and very tedious, and there was a lot of paperwork involved. There was a lot of hurry up and wait mm-hmm. type, of, uh, <laughs> type of movement. And then, yes, uh, zero to 10 in 0.1 second. Yeah. I, I also learned that. And I also learned the threats. And I also learned how the police officer has to be at every single moment be prepared to defend his her, or her life, that of another officer or of a third person. And uh, I mean, I, I loved it. But that was when I was 16, finished high school, went on to college. Hey, let me ask you a uh, quick question yeah. before we get into that. What generation were you? Were, were your parents born uh, in the United States? Were they first? My parents... No, I'm first generation. My parents were born in Mexico, northern Mexico, Chihuahua. Um, first, um, first generation Mexican American, and uh, I'm going to say this a lot probably during this podcast. I'm, I'm the product of the American dream that you're, you're listening to here. My parents came to this country legally. Uh, I'm a big proponent of legal immigration. Uh, we're going to talk a lot about what's happening in our southern border later, but I really, really uh, disapprove of what's going on. I'm a big border security advocate and. Uh, this is the right way. The way my parents did it is the right way. Legally, they came to this country and they assimilated, mm-hmm. which is, wow, that's a bad word right now. You can't use that word under the Obama, I mean, Obama, Biden, whatever, it's all the same administration, because uh, how could you dare assimilate to the United States? Well, that's the key here, is that less and less we see that of people wanting to come to this country to actually want to be an American. And um, and people ask me, uh, when did you become the, this kind of conservative kind of American? I'm like, I didn't become anything. That's the way I was born and raised. My my parents are the ones that raised me this way and these conservative values. It was just the way it came out. I mean, uh, there was no choosing for me. And I, and I love the fact that it, it was this way, which which means, you know, believing in God and family and country. My, my dad became a naturalized U.S. citizen in 1980. And I still remember going to that ceremony with him and, and I'll never forget that. And my mom became a naturalized citizen, I think in 1990. And, uh, and then I, I remember as an, as an ICE agent working, I'll get into that, but working the ceremonies yeah. as a security, uh, HSI would work those man, su- such greats. I love doing those because it really would bring you back to your patriotism and remind, remind you why and how you should be proud of your country because it's the best country in the world. You know, a lot of and people I, take it for granted, because. but when you look at the citizenship test, the, the test you have to take, you know, to get it, 
There's a lot of people I know I bet couldn't pass it. I, I know I'd probably yeah. get a couple <laughs> questions wrong. And you look at the dedication of people to study, to do what it takes, and then the, to wait the time it takes to get yes. their papers. You know, the Americans that won't be able to pass that test. Yeah, <laughs> You'd be surprised how many how many people that are not from here will do better in that test than people that are from this country. And it's you're absolutely right. We've lost a lot of that. And so uh, so that's 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 where I come from. Uh, I have a twin sister that's a lawyer in Texas and an older sister that lives in Texas as well. We're a small family per se in a Hispanic family. My dad is an only child. Uh, my mom has four sisters. That's the biggest side, but she's the only one that came to the U.S. So um, it, they they did it the right way. They wanted my parents wanted something better for their children. Mm -hmm. They wanted us to be more successful, and and they achieved that. And that's what I want for my kids, and I want my kids to do that for their kids. And that's the way we. Uh, I think that's what everybody strives for. This is not a shocking thing to do, but how you get there is very, very important. And I think it's a big difference now how uh, the, the avenues that we're taking to get there. You know, my last position with DEA, uh, I was an offsite in Washington, out in Merrifield, and it's where the DHS, when they would have the uh, swearing-in ceremonies for new immigrants, they would hold them in that facility there, and it was. You've never seen a prouder group of people when they come out of there. I mean, they're they're all nervous going in, but they come out, they're all holding their little flags. They got big, broad smiles. There's people there to congratulate them, you know, and and if you happen to be walking by and you just say, you know, if if you see somebody that, that you think is Hispanic, bienvenidos a los Estados Unidos. Oh, man, they right. come and hug you and you'd see tears running down their eyes and it, it just, oh, it, you know, it does make you proud to be an American. And you probably don't know this, Victor, but my, both of my daughters are Colombian by birth. We adopted them when we were stationed oh. in Colombia. And when we got back to the United States, you know, they came in the, with their green cards and it took us a couple of years, but they quickly became American citizens. And, and, you know, we've taken them back to Colombia and they saw what life could have been. And I know we're off topic a little bit here, Morgan, but it's, it's just, it's really heartwarming <laughs> to see this stuff, uh, you know, oh, going through is. the normal man. system. No, and look, I tell you, if you ever want to, you remember when Jay Leno used to do his man on the street interviews? If oh, I you, love the jaywalking. The oh, jaywalking, yeah. yeah. If you ever wanted to worry sometimes about the future of the education system, all you had to do was listen to his, some of his jaywalking episodes. So <laughs> oh, anyway, we digress. Back to our regularly scheduled podcast. So um, we've established you didn't get arrested that much growing up, so you're no fun. Um, <laughs> I did not. I did not. And I always I always make this joke when they did my background, uh, our background investigations, you know, this <laughs> Murph, that uh, as long as they didn't go to Mexico and check over there, I was going to be okay. That sounds like I have your opinion. <laughs> because we were we were on the border. I, I did happen to go across the border. Maybe nobody knows, uh, but yeah, you, you're, uh, going there, there Juarez, you're going into Juarez. You're going into Juarez. Javier's going into Laredo. Right, right. <laughs> Although it did save his life down the road because he had a gun pulled on. Yeah, him he did because he DC. learned how to talk. He learned how to talk smack like the locals, man. That's what saved his ass. Well, um, we'll talk a little bit about that later right now. Yeah, it's very important, actually. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about that. So, I mean, you obviously had obviously a great influence. Hey, and just, you know, a lot of people, before they go look on the maps and stuff, just real quick perspective. Tell us where El Paso is, and then tell us how close it really is to the border. Hmm. El Paso, Texas is the, the probably the western most part of the state of Texas. And it's uh, they call it the tri-state area because it's, El Paso, Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, and Mexico, the country of Mexico. And it's right there. That's if you go to Mexico, if you go to the El Paso, Texas, you can see Mexico from El Paso, mm -hmm. Texas. If you go to the University of Texas at El Paso, 
on campus, you stand on campus and you're staring at a third world country on, across the freeway, across I-10. You know, I've well, been, we were I've, talking about... I've been on a tour of UTEP and the, the police yeah. chief there showed me some of the bullet holes on the sides of the buildings there where rounds that's are coming right. across the border. That's how close you are. Right. That's how close that's you right. are. I mean, so so you guys, I mean, you were seeing the experience of this just even growing up. So, um, what, so you got out of high school, obviously... Did you know when you got out of high school you wanted to go into law enforcement before you went to college? Yes, I, I just didn't know. Uh, the goal was uh, I wanted to be a, a, in the federal system. And, it, you know, it was it, for me, it didn't happen just automatically like, oh, I got out of college. I graduated with this criminal justice degree. I'm going to be a federal agent. I remember looking up criminal federal investigator and the term, not, not a lot of Internet back then, but. You know, I was remember searching that. What was the criminal? I, I wasn't really uh, familiar with the special agent term yet or mm -hmm. the series 1811 and all that. But I knew I wanted to be that. But, but what happened with me when I was at UTEP, I had a course. A, uh, it was an actual class that was an internship at the U.S. Customs, uh, and which you know as U.S. Customs and Border Protection now at the port of entry at the bridges which back then was U.S. Customs mm -hmm. hey, and, with, and the Victor, with the inspectors. Give us an idea how much traffic that, that goes through. There. I mean, that's that's a big port of entry, obviously. So what's it like down there with the traffic and everything and the people coming across? Incredible traffic. I think the, the, the number one commercial traffic is done in Laredo. I think the second one is El Paso, Texas. The first one is uh, San Isidro in, in San Diego with the traffic that comes in through pedestrian and, and vehicles. But El Paso is hundreds of thousands, millions a year that come through uh, pedestrian and vehicle. So I think I'm trying to think. I don't want to give the wrong number. Don't quote me neither, but I think there are five or six ports of entry in El Paso. And they're super saturated. The This revealed to me when I was there in the internship class, you got to shadow a U.S. Customs inspector, uh, stay with him for two weeks, and you would switch off every two weeks. And, and you actually worked the night shift. You worked the evening shift, the, the swing shift, whatever you had with him. And they gave you a uniform, and you stood with them. You actually walked around with them. And I really learned a lot because yeah, I, I, I knew I was I always knew the other side of being the pedestrian or being the one in the vehicle. Now I got to see the perspective of the officer and doing the inspection, mm -hmm. checking not just the immigration status of people, but the drugs, the smuggling, the the agricultural part of it. Oh, he's bringing limes. Oh, you got sweet potatoes. You can't cross sweet potatoes. You, know, you learn all this stuff, right? Uh, what you can and cannot bring into the United States. The smuggling, oh my goodness. And it's not just drugs. The smuggling of a bunch of things, of birds, um, exotic animals, uh, a lot of things that you learn at the port of entry. But I'll tell you, this is what this is what grabbed me. One day there... Uh, there was a, a seizure for drugs, and in comes the responding special agent, the U.S. Customs special agent. He comes in his unmarked vehicle, he's wearing jeans, he's got his gun, he's got his badge, he's got a t-shirt. And I'm like, who the heck is that guy? And they're like, oh, that's the special agent that's going to take over right here, right now. The, he's the investigator, the detective, right? And I'm like, well, that's the guy I want to be. And they tell me, well, get in line because everybody else is, <laughs> what, is what everybody wants to do at one point. And it was, it was kind of ironic because 10 years later is when I, I became that. I started my career as a, my, the way my progression of my, my, my you know, criminal justice career started was as a state parole officer. That was the opportunity that I first got to get into the criminal justice system. I worked for the Texas Department of Criminal Justice as a parole, district parole officer. And it was great because I was 22 years old. Did you apply and, anywhere else? Oh, yeah. I had... Um, 
you know, I was looking at FBI. FBI required two years of full-time employment of any kind. They didn't care where you worked. If you worked at Kmart, it had to be full-time employment. I didn't have that. I had part-time employment because I worked on my whole career at UTIP. I worked for a law firm uh, as, as a part-timer. Then I went and got a job at the county courthouse uh, just to get a full-time job. Eventually became a, a state parole officer, but I was still link, thinking maybe FBI and U.S. Customs. Those are the two that I was looking at very closely. Uh, I, I worked as a parole officer for almost three years, but right before I applied to become a federal probation officer, I had found out about that position. I'm like, wait a minute, you mean there's a position that does almost exactly the same thing that we do at the state level, but gets paid twice the amount of money with pretty decent benefits? Uh, I want to go do that. <laughs> I happen to be a, a little bit of an ambitious person, a healthy ambitious person, and I did, and I applied to be a federal probation officer that that moved me and my my wife who was pregnant at the time to San Antonio, Texas, and I worked as a United States probation officer. Little did I didn't know, little did I know that these two positions as a state parole officer and United States probation officer now working for the US courts, the district judges, the AUSAs, assistant US attorneys, the the, the uh, defense counsels and the motions and all this stuff was really going to prepare me to become a decent, uh, hardworking special agent. And and I, I thought I was going to be a federal probation officer for 20 years. Eventually got my transfer back to El Paso and interviewing. And I'm sure Murph went through that. You talk a lot to the probation department mm -hmm. when you prosecute people. And I used to interview DEA agents, FBI agents, Secret Service agents, uh, U.S. Marshals, all these people that brought cases to Hey, I hate to interrupt, um, food. but I can tell you right now, you guys don't have it as good as I do. It is freaking eight degrees here right now, 25, allegedly outside. And my wife just got through making pumpkin chocolate chip cookies. Oh, my goodness. Oh, Trish, Trish, where's mine? Dude, you're in fucking Florida, <laughs> you traitorous bastard. We've we had this we discussion. Get, we get mail down here. Yeah. It's only 68 today in North Texas. There you go, uh, oh, oh, what? Thank oh you. I feel so sorry oh. for both of you guys. Well, <laughs> well you, can, you continue on with your story while I munch on this just fabulous pumpkin chocolate chip. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so uh, I was talking about, um, uh, now you see I'm thinking cookies. Now. I know, that's, uh, I'm thinking the same thing. Federal probation officer. Yes. You learned a lot. Probation Thank officer. You. I was going to be that. Do I have to carry this whole podcast, Victor? Or are you going to pitch you in to, at some you're point? You're going to connect bro. it. Uh, so I, I do the PO thing for almost five years. When I uh, at the four year mark, I really think you know what I want to do. What these guys do, I don't want to interview them. I don't want to read about them. Yeah. I want to be a federal criminal investigator, a special agent. And I applied to be a U.S. Customs special agent. This is when the merger was happening mm. and DHS was created. Supposed to be the most non, uh, it was back then, a lot of people don't know this, the seal, if you look at the seal of the DHS, this is the only seal that the eagle is piercing through the red line. Oh yeah. The, 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 the eagle's uh, wings are piercing through the red line, meaning that it was gonna go through uh, the bureaucracies of the government oh, there was not, yeah. it, was, it wasn't going to be a bureaucracy <laughs> sorry i'm going to fall over here laughing here and just isn't that uh, funny i, I thought well, i thought you were the most say bureaucratic the, i thought you were going to say the, the eagle was bent over crying <laughs> it it is it's probably the most bureaucratic agency ever now oh my uh, gosh. created but anyway um so i went through the uh the trials and tribulations of a brand new agency with the u.s Customs service special agents merged with the Immigration and Naturalization Service, INS, 
criminal investigators merged into what you know as ICE, mm-hmm. Immigration and Customs Enforcement. When I graduated from the academy, I have my director's picture and I'm holding a U.S. Department of Treasury, U.S. Customs Special Agent badge. And my certificate says Immigration and Customs Enforcement. How screwed up is that? They didn't even they hadn't even invented the ice badge yet. They didn't even know what they were going to call it. And just a point of trivia for history too. I mean, you think about that too. So you had ATF, which was part of Treasury. You had right. uh, Customs, which was part of Treasury. Um, you had Secret Service at that time, which was part of Treasury. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, I mean, it was just people don't realize this was a. The other thing, yeah, that happened too out of this, DHS was the consolidation of 22 agencies. You talk about 22 former kings of their castle or queens of their castle having to give up oh, to yeah. one person. There's no conflict. Know, oh, bo- <laughs> no conflict. Nothing, nothing to see <laughs> Just here. A little Move bit. along. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. The conflict. A lot of people took early retirements. Yeah. Um, it, it was it was a mess. The the Immigration Naturalization Service did not have the same background as a U.S. Customs Special Agent. That's just the truth. Mm-hmm. They didn't even have the same training. And I'll tell you because as we did, uh, you know, ops on the ground with the radio, they used different uh, 10 codes. Oh, yeah. You know, we're over here 1022 and they're like, what the heck? They're, they're calling out 103. And the U.S. Customs Agents are like, what the heck are you? What the fuck is 10? I've never 10, heard 3. 10, 3. It's 1022. It's 1022, you know, oh. stuff like that. And then, and so they eventually, the agency, after they caught up, started sending the immigration and INS special agents to the academy because they had never been to one. And they actually said, you got to go actually become a special agent. So send them for the 10 or 12 week period. I went through the whole entire, the 22 week period, but they only made them go through the special agent training, which is a second part of the academy, to at least get that and all of us be on the same page. Do you remember your 10 codes? Because in Kansas, 1022 meant disregard, 103 meant yeah. stand by. Right. Same right. thing for you guys? No, that, that's exactly right. That that's Those, those are the ones. But INS, for some reason, 103 meant disregard. <laughs> and so it's kind of it's weird, you know. Uh, I, remember, I remember a lot of them. Uh, my family and I love 1022. I use that all the time with my family. Oh, yeah. Hey, we're going to 1022 that. Uh, so, <laughs> um, so I, I, you know, I, I get very fortunate in assignment back to El Paso after I graduate from the academy. And that was very, very uh, advantageous to me because uh, I'm from El Paso. I know the city like the back of my hand. And guess what? I know Mexico on the other side. Mm-hmm. Hey, did you and ever so, meet Marty Robbins? I, the you know that, I'm, I'm sorry. It's, it's a music. Martin no, no, Robbins. the song. You're talking about the song. The song, yeah. It's one yes. of the most famous country, one of the yes. best country songs, El Paso, out in the West yeah. Texas, town of yeah, El yeah. Paso. Yo, yeah, I can I sing the, the rest of it for you guys. Please, Marty Robbins Park is oh a very famous God. park. I, I gotta, Marty Robbins is a very famous park in El Paso. I'll, I'll be yeah. back in a minute. I got to go throw up after listening to Morgan <laughs> sing there. <laughs> <laughs> one little kiss and Felina, goodbye. I mean, that was such a, what a ballad. That, that's why I'm saying, you know, uh, he had to be a big name there. But anyway, we digress. So you're back in El Paso. Back in El Paso, uh, and of course, what do you work? Dope, you mm-hmm. know. Uh, Narcotics Conspiracy Group 2, one of the best groups I ever worked under. And U.S. Customs, uh, hardcore, old school supervisor, uh, God rest his soul, uh, his soul Kenny, Kenny Williams. Uh, you know, they don't make supervisors like that anymore. Yeah. This is a, this is a man that um, I, I always proud my, pride myself with work. I, I worked. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not a super agent by any means. I just... You have a good and, work and I think ethic. Murph understands this. 
I worked, I worked, I, I like to go to work and I like to create cases and I like to do, think outside the box and, and create things out of something that instead of in El Paso, they call them bag and tag cases, you know, the bridge bag and tag, easy, mm-hmm. easy, easy. No, I actually looked at stash houses, looked at this, looked at that. Eventually, uh, got transferred to the human smuggling, human trafficking group. There you go. Oh, I hated it. Hated it. Yeah. I didn't know, I didn't know much about why, that. Why did you hate it at first? Because there was a, there was kind of a stigma uh, well, that's, that's an immigration thing. We're not immigration, we're customs. There's a big divide between immigration and customs people. I, I, people like your legacy, what I'm legacy, nothing. <laughs> I came in the middle of all this. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I came, I went to a uh, U.S. customs Academy, but I, I really didn't want to get caught up in, in to choose sides. I just like, just give me the work. I did, I did put up a challenge when I did go to the human smuggling and human trafficking group because I, I really did not understand it. I, I really didn't want to deal with a, the human smuggling of aliens. I ended up being pretty good at it and became a subject matter expert in human trafficking cases. Was Were the cartels involved at that point? Nope. How, well, nope. Who, how was it organized? Was it just like some minor organized crime groups? Or at that point when you started investigating, who was running most of the human smuggling? Human smuggling groups, individuals, uh, uh, very separate from the cartels. Great question, by the way. Very, very separate from the cartels. Back then, there were drug DTOs, drug mm-hmm. trafficking organizations. Mm-hmm. They, they they dealt in drugs, and that's the biggest change today. They're no longer drug drug organizations. They're cartels because they uh, deal in everything, and they've a- adopted the human smuggling, the human trafficking, and everything else that they deal well, with. Well, they became polycriminal yeah. groups. How how long That's were right. you working drugs before they moved you over to human smuggling? About three years. About three years. And I was loving the drugs. I really love, you know, the controlled deliveries mm-hmm. and all the CIs and all that good stuff. And I really enjoyed it doing a little bit of, I wasn't, I'm not an undercover agent, uh, a certified undercover, but we all work a little bit of undercover here and there and enjoyed those couple of cases that I got to do that way. It was fun. It was a lot of fun. And um, I had to, I struggled with the human smuggling trafficking, but then... When I started getting trained and, and, and all that, I really took to it. And uh, uh, my, my career changed when they brought me a case re- regarding a, a corrupt Border Patrol agent. And they said, will you work this case? And I said, yeah, it was a very delicate case. Mm-hmm. OIG is going to give you the jurisdiction, Office of Inspector General, who are the ones that actually See, work the corruption. You are the man. I haven't had to tell you one time to define an acronym. With Murph and his buddies all the time, all the other feds, I got to say, whoa, whoa, define acronyms. You have been spot on. You have not missed a single opportunity to define an acronym. Murph, you need to take notes. I need to find a new partner. <laughs> uh, the OIG <laughs> Inspector General is, uh, you know, they're the police of the police. And they. Um, uh, I took this case and, yeah, it was very successful in taking down a corrupt Border Patrol agent, uh, you know, allowing illegal aliens through his checkpoint that uh, was paying, getting paid $500 a head and took down the organization in Mexico and the one in the U.S. and that, you know, went on a wire and did the Title III and all that good stuff. Uh, and good police work. Uh, and then I got to go into, you know, money, money laundering investigation. I really want to do financial investigations. Mm-hmm. Well, let's, That's what I want to do, the big impact. Before we get into that, let's talk a little bit about the human smuggling, because later on, I, I want to ask you about that, because that, the whole complexion of that has changed, obviously. But I mean, we when we uh, episode four, we had a guy named Lou Velozzi on. Lou actually started off on INS, but went to ATF. But he worked some human smuggling cases, like out of China. They were putting people onto ships and bringing yeah. them in. I mean, there are just stories that just tear your heart out because you realize these oh, yeah. people are being treated like property, not like 
human beings. What were a couple of the things that really struck you when you started working these cases that go, I mean, you go home at night and you look at your family and your, your wife and you go, you know, for the... There, but for the grace of God, go why? Because mm-hmm. my parents didn't do that. You know, I mean, I'm here yeah. and it could have been much different. It, it, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's the, it's how you, you, um, you see how, what the capabilities of one human being is to treat the other. How in the world can one human being treat another human being the way they do? And that's the biggest thing that is, I think initially the shocker, they're treated like a commodity. I mean, uh, I can't like a, like the chair that I'm sitting on. That's how they treat them. Yeah. If the chair breaks, they try to fix it, and if it doesn't fix, they throw it away. Yeah. yeah. Simple as that. They'll stack as many chairs inside the back of a truck to get paid. The same. Just that's how they treat human beings. It, it is. It, it's a dollar sign for them, and it's gotten even worse. I mean, I worked all those cases. The guys in the back of a pickup truck, eighteen stacked like sardines, sealed with plywood. Oh, jeez. With no air. And uh, tractor trailers with a hundred and some people in the back dying of dehydration, some dead. Yeah, that's the, the that's human smuggling. The human stash houses, people, a hundred and fifty bodies in a one thousand square foot home does not is not normal. And so you have people suffocating. You have people with uh, you have a lot of issues when you have human beings like that. Uh, the the sickness, the illnesses, the the lack of food and water. And uh, that's human smuggling. It's, they treat it as a kilo of cocaine. Yeah. It's going from here to there to the distribution. They're distributing bodies. That's all they're doing. Well, I, I recall reading in your book there where you're talking about the children, where they had a house that uh, you know, they oh, were yeah. keeping the kids at, at all ages, from infants to teenagers, to be used to bring other people into the country. You know, and, and their that, parents. That was a big case and big shocker because we, that was down. That was a takedown of a motel. Like 18 aliens, I think it was, and there was there was no children. But when I was, we were interviewing the the subject, the the smuggler, which was my partner was in there interviewing. Uh, the one of the ladies kept on yelling, "My daughter, my daughter!" I go talk to her. She's in Spanish. He's like, she tells me he's got my daughter, uh, 18 month old daughter. I said, "What are you talking about? There's no kids in the hotel." He says, "No, I gave him my daughter." And we could talk about all this. What's happening? How? People sometimes willingly take give up their kids because they get coerced by the mm-hmm. cartel, mm-hmm. and yeah, eventually we we break the guy. He gives us the address in El Paso. We suit up, hit the house, discover eighteen kids. Uh, oh my goodness! All of a sudden we're like, what the? Well, we gotta call CPS. We gotta get a van. We gotta get uh, car seats. We gotta get diapers. And so imagine at the border when there's nineteen thousand of them. Right. <laughs> you could imagine how overwhelmed the government has become because once you have a child in your possession. Now you're responsible for that. Right. Yeah, where one adult can take care. I mean, one adult could probably handle five to ten other adults in terms of like span of control. You can keep them. You have one child or something like that, one baby. It, it takes one per. It takes one, maybe two, to take care of a baby. And so it's just like you, it, when you get children, it is so resource intensive because right. you cannot obviously handle them the same way you can adults. That's right. That's right. And so I worked those cases. Did really good on the on the border patrol case. Uh, continue on the human trafficking and got got into the money laundering and financial investigations part of it. And then that's where, uh, this is 2008, to our two agents assigned on the other side of the border in Ciudad Juarez at the Mexican con- uh, the U.S. consulate in Mexico uh, need help. And they're, they're calling for TDYers, temporary duty assign- uh, assignment uh, agents to help. I put in for it. I get it. 
And before you know it, I'm getting, I'm crossing every morning at from the port entry, a port of the entry at seven in the morning. They come and pick me up in an armored vehicle, and I'm working. First of all, the, when I started there in 2008, ICE and DEA were in a private building, mm-hmm. uh, like a private building with architects and whatever, just like a private. Uh, and what city businesses. is this again that you're going into? This is Ciudad, this is Ciudad Juarez, right on, on the other side of El Paso, Texas. Okay. And this is 2008. If people go back and think this is the, it was the most dangerous city in the world at that time, when they were suffering about 350 homicides a month. The cartel was, and the and the turf war was out of control at that time. It is, uh, and I, I remember saying this, this is the worst it's going to be. It can't get any worse. Mexico can only go up from here. Boy, was I wrong. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> really wrong. Yeah, it's not funny. It is it's worse now. Sad. It's gotten way worse. It's just sad. Uh, and that opened my, that assignment was, uh, boy, you know, now you're seeing cases in a, on a more international level. When I was there in the... <laughs> Uh, one morning, there's a dead body in front of the, in front of the building with a sign. You know how the cartel put signs, mm-hmm. uh, says Dea for the DEA, and we're like, okay, they know we're in this building. Nice. <laughs> and uh, we were so glad that the inauguration of the brand new consulate building was about to open up, and then now we had a secure place at least to work in. But let me tell you, that was something else. That was an incredible. And I grew up there, going there every day, and it was a very surreal feeling where. The day that you were the place that you had lunch that day, you go home, you come back the next day and they murdered six people that night. Unbelievable. And, and it's kind of like we're surrounded by this violence. Right. And uh, nobody, my wife knew that I was there, but I couldn't tell my parents. I couldn't tell my I couldn't tell anybody because it's on the news every day. Mm-hmm. Plus the missing women. Remember that the missing women oh, yeah. and the, all these things were going on in Juarez and. Uh, we're trying to make an impact here, working with the Mexican government to take some of these people down. We started discovering the mass graves of dozens and dozens of bodies, uh, the smuggling, the trafficking, the drugs, human trafficking. It, it was it was incredible. That assignment and that exposure led me to go to cases in Mexico City at the U.S. Embassy. Eventually, you know, the stars aligned for you sometimes in your career. They did for me at that time. And then I got offered and got a permanent position as a as a U.S. diplomat in Mexico City, and then off we went. Let's talk about the time you're doing TDY, you know, for temporary duty. Uh, what you know, what the other thing too is, you'll see video of the border, and it just looks like it might be easy to get into Mexico, but coming back across, it looks like you might be in line for four hours, five hours. I mean, how did you? How did you handle going back and forth like that? Did you get a special lane? You, yes. Okay. How how did that yeah, work? Yeah, yeah. The that so uh, for the actual TDY, I would take my G ride and park it at one of the ports of entries, and then get picked up by the agents in Mexico in an armored vehicle. Work there all day till nine ten o'clock at night. Get dropped off, and we did have a a, a secure access lane for uh you know your the, the the agents there were accredited diplomats. I still wasn't. I was just on a, an official assignment, what they call a red passport. But I would drive with them and get easy access to come back to the bridge. We did not have to wait in the line. That You're right, it's two, three hours, whatever it is. We had a, 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 a special access line to get us back. And then they would drop me off, and I was doing that every single day um, for a couple of months. I, I think I was on 60, going on uh, the 60-day TDY. When it, I went to Mexico City for an arms trafficking case. And uh, the ICE attache asked me, do you want to finish your TDY in Mexico City instead of going back to Juarez? 
And I said, that's a pretty good idea. I, uh, I, I will. And I did. And one of my really good friends was a DEA agent assigned in Mexico, in Mexico City. And he took me around and how they're putting these really nice apartments and the really, and Mexico City has been phenomenal. I love Mexico City, such a metropolitan industrial city, loved it. And I said, I could do this. I could work here. And eventually I got picked up and to go and I brought my family, sold our home. It was going to be a five-year tour. And my kids were small at that uh, young age at that time. My wife left her job and you'll hear me talk a lot about my wife because she, she didn't blink an eye. She's like, let's go. And we go. We go to Mexico City. Wait a minute. A five-year tour? A five-year tour. Wow. I mean, um, you know, Steve, obviously, when we're talking to you and JP and other stuff, even in Columbia or places like that, it was two years, and then you had to extend right. if you're going to do that. But, man, five years at a whack, that's that's not just moving. That's a that's a commitment. I mean, oh, yeah. you, you, it's a commitment. Yeah, you're, it's a, it's, you're relocating your family, but the culture and the lifestyle, I mean, five years in a foreign country— is much different than a two year, you know, you're down there for two years, you know, you're coming back, you maintain contact. Man, how did you handle, I mean, was every, everybody enjoy thinking about, Hey, we're going to be five years down there. Yeah. And, and let me tell you, I, I joke around that we had the 252 reasons why we're leaving. We didn't have to, um, it, it for an agent's career, it, it financially is better. Yes. You do make a little bit of more money. Obviously Mexico is a very, uh, low cost, uh, low cost of living a country that you can live in and make a little bit more money, not necessarily on paper, but you're not spending any money. You know, mm -hmm. you don't, you don't have a mortgage, you don't have bills to pay. And so, um, that was sure that was part of the reason, but for my wife and I, it was more of leaving El Paso to see the world. We wanted our kids to be, even being a Mexican American heritage, we're not Mexican. So we wanted to enjoy that and learn that heritage, na the native, you know, and, and, and we did, the language got better. The schools were phenomenal. Uh, the private schools that the embassy puts our kids in. My wife eventually started working for the state department. I mean, it is, it, it is, it is a great great opportunity uh, for ourselves, for our kids. It's a good deal. It just happens to be in Mexico where it's one of the most dangerous countries huh. in the world. Yeah, there's a trade off. And I got to tell you, I mean, uh, my dad was military. We lived all over the world. I mean, I lived in Iran with my work that I did. I was in lots of different countries, but I have to tell you, uh, you know, I, I made a cultural faux pas one time. I was in Mexico City. And a lot of times you think, when you think of a lot of Mexican women or Hispanics, you think, you know, black hair, brown eyes. Oh, no. And I'm standing talking to this, what I thought was talking to a lady. I said, hey, can you help me for a second? I just need to know where this is. She had blonde hair and blue eyes. She didn't speak yeah. a lick of English. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, yeah. and here I am. And all of a sudden it was like, not like mind blown, but it's like, I just realized that, dude, I need to get out a little bit more. They don't all look like me. They look like you too. <laughs> and uh, uh, the place that I lived in, they're all kind of Jewish, Mexican, tall, blonde, green eyes. My wife, uh, uh, they look at her and they think she's Italian. She's very light complected with light green, green eyes. And she's from uh, El Paso, Texas. Her parents are also from Mexico. But you do get this variety uh, uh, that people don't understand that. Uh, I always point to the boxer uh, Canelo Alvarez, you know, the redhead. I mean, they're like, Mexico? Yeah, he's from Guadalajara. But he's like red hair and red super hair, yeah. white. Yeah. 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 And, uh, and yeah, he's Mexican national. Then that's, you do see that in, uh, a lot more in Mexico. Uh, but we had, we were having a great time. The, the downfall was the work. And in the sense of this is that, is that I, I just disregarded my family. I, I was never home. The amount of work 
in Mexico at that time that ICE office was the most uh, the busiest office of all offices in Mexico City, and we were understaffed. You could only imagine the level of work that we had from all the traffickings that you could imagine and the smuggling going on from Mexico to the United States. But we also supported the interior offices, giving us what they call a collateral request. Can you, we're looking for a fugitive. We're looking for this guy that has a warrant. We're looking for a, a witness. We're looking, I mean, uh, it was, I loved it. I loved it. Uh, I did neglect my family. I was v- rarely home. But I, I can't deny that I love the work. I love being out there. Oh, oh, we got the dignitaries coming in. We got the Secretary of Homeland Security. We got the Director of ICE. We got, now we got to do put on our Secret Service hats and become security detail guys. And we're doing this and for you know for days. And it is it was nonstop. And then on top of that, uh, travel. Well, travel was for me because on top of that, we're doing investigations with the government of Mexico. Everything is through the host government, yet we're the ones that initiate it. We travel with them. We take them. We bring them. We train them. Who is we're the doing primary everything. agency you would work with down there? PGR. Uh, well, and this is what happened. When I was there, we were literally seeing our tax dollars, uh, $1.7 billion under the Merit Initiative, go to Mexico. We built their federal police force. The helicopter that was there, the, the Black Hawk was ours that we gave them. The buildings, the armored vehicles, the equipment, the uniforms, it was came from the U.S. government. And part of that merit initiative was to train them, to train them to try to have Mexico switch from a written, what they call a written criminal justice system to an oral system like ours. They don't have juries. They don't have uh, courts, that type of court system in Mexico. In Mexico, it's all sealed. It's all closed. There are witnesses are witness statements. There is no oral testimony from someone. No one, no one testifies against you. Somebody goes and says a statement. Uh, Stephen Murphy did this to me. Boom. We put Stephen Murphy in jail. He has to prove that he didn't do it. It's yeah. the other way around yeah. in Mexico. And that, that makes everything right for corruption. That's right. And so the corruption, as you can imagine. Oh, by the way, before I even forget, I'm already, we're already counting three individuals that we work with almost on a daily basis are now in custody. One in New York, Genaro Garcia Luna, the head of the federal oh, yeah. police. <laughs> Actually, he was him. arrested two. He, you know, I we work with him all the time. He was arrested uh, almost two years ago, Grapevine, Texas. Uh, and uh, the second was Luis Cárdenas Palomino, the guy that responded to my shooting. He's in custody for torture charges and corruption charges. And they just arre- uh, arrested Facundo Rosas, which I have a certificate somewhere back here signed by him. This is the surrealness of who we work with, these are all Sinaloa cartel members. And did we know at the time? Yes, of course, we know they're all corrupt. We just, those are the people that the government of Mexico put. Well, we had to work with them. The devil you know is better than the devil you don't. And it's like, you know, man, Steve, you and I talked about this too and some of the other stuff. It's like even working down in Colombia. I mean, you don't, you don't necessarily get to pick and choose your country or the people in that country. You just got to figure out when we talk to like Aaron Graham, you know, the episode that's coming out um, uh, before yours, his will be episode 35. You know, he talked, that's one of the challenges. He was working in a, just outside, you know, he was came out of San Diego, you know, working down there too. And it's like, how do you trust the folks? And it's like, you just, yeah. Yeah, plus you, you figure, got, you you navigate, figure it out. Got, it's a lot of navigation. There's a lot of vetting. There's a lot of, that is a every single day occurrence when you work in Mexico. The information that goes out and it's very, very delicate. But somehow, um, I was pretty successful in, in, in what I did because not only did we work the drugs and the money laundering, I worked the human trafficking. 
And they put me in charge of what they call the Global Trafficking in Persons Initiative. They call it GTIP. And Mexico had just, or about to pass, this is now 2009, their very first federal anti-human trafficking law. And they wanted to prosecute somebody for human trafficking. And uh, since I was a subject matter expert in that, well, go at it, Victor. And let me tell you, uh, they were, I was pretty successful with them in taking down these human trafficking groups that brought women and children from Mexico to New York, Atlanta, Houston, Miami. And I wrote some of those in my book examples because some sometimes I still get the, uh, is that true, Victor? Does child trafficking really happen? Does human trafficking really happen? Yes. Jeez. I saw it firsthand. And I can't take those images off of my head. Yeah. And I rescued a lot of them, rescued a lot of women, a lot of children from these horrific conditions. And we took down a lot of these organizations uh, and was very successful in that. But it required a lot of traveling. And they called me trips in Mexico City because I just traveled like crazy. And it's not because I'm traveling like, like you think, like leisure. No, it's where the investigations took me. Central America, Panama, Guatemala. It's going to the U.S., New York a lot, uh, all over the place, just... Uh, uh, in, uh, a lot of uh, SIA, special interest alien smuggling of special interest aliens that are ties to terrorism coming through Mexico. This is 10 years ago, guys. Now, when They are there right now. When you were in Mexico City, how many customs agents were there with you? Oh, my God. When we started, there was four yeah. in, uh, in Mexico City. There was 30 DEA agents, and we had four ICE, and we were like, okay, <laughs> we need to get a little bit more people over here. Yeah. And then I think we hit like seven or eight. It's still... How many, how many, we, how many, if you, if you could have got the number of agents you needed to really effectively handle it, realizing you're not going to get a hundred people, but how many would, how many did you really need down there to, to, to handle all the work you had coming in? At least, at least 25. Yeah. And you at had least 25. how many? We started with four and then seven. <laughs> but then we, they brought up three more, seven. And these are just the agents versus the, the assistant attaches, which are the supervisors that didn't carry anything, they didn't carry cases, they just didn't do shit. Yeah. But I'll, that's a whole different. Are they, wait a minute. They I'm went to parties about. and they had drinks and they liaised, you know, with their counterparts. Well, let me put it to you this way: we still had to do that. <laughs> we still had to do. It. If they would have done that part, I would have been okay with it at the beginning. And I always joke around when I do these public speaking events that when I was going to be a diplomat. I was going to be wearing a suit. I'm going to go over to these nice embassy parties. And I'm going to have this fine wine and cheese. Uh, no. Did we have a little bit of that? Yes. Uh, because it's part of being a diplomat. You have to. Let me tell you, we got to the point where I don't, we didn't want to go anymore. I don't want to go. Yeah. Please, someone go to the, I don't want to go to the dinner. I don't want to have drinks. I don't want it. It's all work. And it, I, I got, I started work at eight and it's already midnight. And, and, and I, I don't want to go to the event. And so if the if our supervisors, in fact, would have taken that that, um, that responsibility, that, that responsibility out of us, off of us, that would have been welcome. But they didn't. So I'm doing GS-15 work in Mexico City because my boss doesn't want to go. I'm flying with the uh, the deputy attorney general in her jet from Mexico City to Washington because my boss doesn't want to do it. And so we caught, we found ourselves in the situation, and uh, uh, I'll talk more about that in the aftermath after the shooting. Unbelievable. You know, and, and when we were in Columbia, if you went to those parties, you better not drink too much. If the bosses saw you drinking too much, you're going to have to answer for that. You know, it was, you were there. To, That's right. You were working, just like you said. It, it wasn't fun at all. It was work. It was never actually hell, uh, uh, you know, uh, fun. Did we have these times where we had some great parties? And absolutely we did. Um, uh, you have to, uh, within the ICE family, uh, my my wife became 
best friends with the other wives mm -hmm. of the other agents. It was it, we, we became family. As a matter of fact, we have uh, one of my agent friends, my wife and I uh, baptized uh, were the godparents to one of the kids. That's how close we became yeah. because we're compadres because we became family. We it was just us, and so we hung out each other's apartments, you know, ate together, partied together, and and worked together. And it was a lot of time that we spent together. It was just us. Well, I gotta yeah. tell you, I was at I was uh, down in that new uh, federal police building in Mexico City, so I know I had. The oh, you went to the bunker. Yeah, 2012. I had to. I got a chance to take a visit down there. And it was uh, it was very interesting, uh, and I mean, nice people, just very yeah. nice people. Like you said, the Blackhawks out there, everything, just super nice people. Hey, want to ask you about a couple things though. So first of all, um, when you were down there, you talked about uh, as a diplomat, you guys was it standard issue that everybody went to work down there on those five year tours? Did you guys all get diplomatic passports? Yes, uh, if you were uh, a permanent assigned uh, employee you get a diplomatic a black passport and and it, it, those came with certain levels of immunity protection right second thing though it, now that you're down there at what point does it start transitioning on the human trafficking and the human smuggling from just the smuggling groups at what point because you mentioned Sinaloa, that's that's huge area. I mean, we had uh, yeah. uh, Abe Perez and Paul Crane on talking about uh, capturing El Chapo, you know, right. Sinaloa cartel. Just, I mean, they they control, the, I think they got into it because in, anything that moves across the border, money, people, dope. I mean, these guys are running, all, they, they figured out how to make money uh, more than the Colombians did because they said, look, we control all the corridors going in. When did you see that transition start happening from the human smuggling groups to the uh, cartels? I would say that happened... Um... Uh, probably after 2014, 15. Uh, so really, if you think about it, not so long ago, mm -hmm. uh, the, and I'll tell you when it actually started even more, when the caravans started coming out. Remember those first caravans? Yeah. Oh, we're going to, we're waiting for 700 people from Honduras. They got together. That was really the turning point where the, the cartel said, wait a minute, wait a minute, you're not going to come through here. Mm -hmm. And come through our territory to go to the, we don't care where the hell you're going. You're not going to come through here without paying us. And that's when it started. And I would say that was by 16, 17, really when the, the first caravan, the first caravans that came in got through without having to deal with the cartels. And then the, it didn't, didn't take much for the cartel says, uh, uh, that's not going to happen anymore. And then that's when it started. It, they took over all of it. Wow. Wow. Um, so let's go back. You, you, you're into this, so you're you're on a five-year mission now. You know, it's almost like the Star Trek Enterprise. It's five-year mission to boldly go where no others have gone before. Well, it's so. like it's like the the uh, SS Minnow, a five-hour tour, a three-hour tour. <laughs> three-hour. Three there, there you go. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Where you? By the way, if it was a five-hour tour, you'd be screwed. I got to pee. Where can we stop somewhere? Just go off the back of the boat. Pal. That's right. That's um, right. So l let's talk a little bit more about that. So. You talk about something that is the same thing we hear from a lot of other guys. Um, they, the family gets ignored because a the work is good, it's exciting, it's what you signed up to do, and b you get so wrapped up into it. At what point does it start causing a strain with your family with the hours and stuff? Do you get through like the first year or two years? Or? Yeah, yeah, it, it, we get through the first year. My wife being. Uh, you'll hear me talk a little bit about my, about her. She she was the rock. She was the one holding the fort, and and because she of her personality, it was good. She she loved it and uh, being out there. And then she started working as a contractor, State Department, all good. And then and then the shift started happening. 
And I would say that happened, started happening towards the second half of 2010. And I, I started hearing the, the complaining, if you will, because my wife, you know, I, I've been in law enforcement for all the time that I've been married to her uh, now, 23 years. And so she knew, she knew that this is a different career and, and that's not what was bothering her. It's just like, she's like, you are at a different level that I've never seen before in your career. You're just not here. My kids were questioning me as to what I was doing at home. And it doesn't feel good when your kids ask you, what the heck are you doing here, dad? Mm -hmm. uh, I live here. Uh, this is my couch. And, and it's not a good feeling. And you start missing. I've always missed birthdays and stuff here because of our job. But this was like missing everything. You're missing school. You're missing, you're missing every. You're not part of this family here. And my wife starts giving me like, hey, what's going on? And towards the end of 2010, She's like, you have to change something with this traveling. Uh, you know, something's got to happen. And I, I wrote it in the book, Murphy. You remember this about the, her, her taking the cell phones into, oh yeah, into the bathroom <laughs> because holding them over the toilet. I had three phones. I carried three phones, and she's like, I'm gonna flush these damn effing phones down the toilet because those phones just never ever stopped with the emails and back. Remember the Blackberries back oh, then? Yeah. Man, I was good on that Blackberry. I could write reports on that baby. So what you uh, need? Blackberry, Nextel, radio, cell phone is <laughs> crazy. So what you need three phones for? Who were the three phones from? One, uh, two from the agency and, um, and an extra, I had a bunch of phones, but there were, let's just put it to you. There was more secure phones that what we call throw down phones. Mm -hmm. I had a box full of them and I carried three and two that I carried permanently and then that one that was rotating. Um, and so, uh, yeah, she was like done with it. And I remember telling her, listen, okay, brand new year, 2011. I'm going to turn over a new leaf, honey. I promise I'm a new yes, man. <laughs> this is it. I'm doing everything Yeah, yeah. I can. Okay. How long did that last? It, it, nothing, nothing. It literally <laughs> seemed like I said the opposite because 2011 January starts and I'm off to, uh, Panama, Guatemala, Denver, Arizona. <laughs> and she's like, what the F are you doing, man? Are you doing it on purpose? I'm not doing it on purpose. These are, these are the cases. This is where they're taking me. I'm not, I'm not wanting to travel. I don't want to. I just, it's work. And this is what I do. And, and then February, February comes around and, uh, I had just gotten back. This is the week before the shooting. Uh, I was working an incredible case of Afghans being smuggled through Mexico. And Who was smuggling them? A, a human, a human smuggling cartelish type. That's where the I, I saw a little bit of that merger happening. And this is 2011. Well, let me ask you about uh, that real quick too, because there's a lot of concerns too. When we see a lot of these special interest aliens, like you call the SAAs, or but we get people from countries that are designated, uh, you know, uh, state sponsors of terrorism, or they are right. specially designated nationals or designated terrorist organizations, things like that. How much of that is organized, you know, in terms of you think them trying to actually get, quote, terrorists into the country as opposed to they just happen to be from that area and they're wanting to get in the country. Do you see any concerted effort by terrorist groups to get people in? Absolutely. Absolutely. Both. Some are just might be smuggled to come into the country. Some are purposefully highly organized smuggling routes to get a terrorist into our country. Mexico, two weeks ago, as we do this interview, released a Yemen national on the FBI terror watch list. Just like that. They, they released them like any other alien, gave them the, the silly 30-day pass. You have 30 days to leave the country of Mexico, and we have no idea where the guy's at. 
And we're not talking about a potential terrorist, a threat. This guy is on, if, if FBI, FBI would get his hands on him, he would be in our custody, possibly in Guantanamo Bay. This is, these are the people that are coming through per- purposefully because they know the, the border. If you and I know the border is so open, so, so do they. Yeah. Well, when you think of Yemen and, you know, Somalia, you've got uh, Al-Shabaab, you've got the Houthi rebels, mm-hmm. you've got people mm-hmm. who are in direct conflict with either us or, you know, friends of the United States. So, yeah, th- you know, that gets worrisome. But let's set the stage for this, too. So did, did you have a main area of focus that, they had, that the agency had you working on, or were you covering all sorts of cases? Uh, the whole country of Mexico. I did concentrate on uh, the whole country, but I, because of, I was looking at a, a lot of the human trafficking, the human trafficking happened in the northern part of Mexico City, the smuggling, obviously, through Guatemala and coming through their border. I went and did a big southern border assessment of the Mexican border with Guatemala and Belize. And man, <laughs> uh, I was in the jungle down there and crazy stuff, but it, it, I, I really, I was on the ground learning and seeing how wide open it is and and these people were coming in so the 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 strange part of the case that i was working right before the shooting the afghan case was in the sonoran region which is you know the other side of arizona uh and that's where that organization was located had identified them i had a source uh that was brought to me by denver hsi and this is this is where my language ability really helped me you you asked early on in the show about my speaking abilities. Well, you I know, was I was just Me- joking. I know you speak. No, 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 no. But, but, I'll, but I, I actually take it because it, I, I was successful because of that. Mm-hmm. I was successful because of my language ability. It really, and I'm not kidding, it made an impactful difference with the government of Mexico. That so much that the the Mexican prosecutor had never heard me speak English for like a year when I, I dealt with them. They had never heard me speak English, and one time we went to a a conference in in Miami that I spoke obviously in English and when I got off of that podium they looked at me like a deer in the headlights and like who the hell are you and I'm like what are you talking <laughs> about he says we had never heard you speak English we didn't even know that you spoke English like and I said yeah my parents always said I always counted for two they actually saw me like two different people up there it's kind of very unique uh being uh, Hispanic but hey let me going, ask you about anyway. let me ask you about that real quick too on the language stuff even though your parents, you know, your first generation, your parents came out of, uh, you said uh, Chihuahua, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, it, even if they're teaching you at home, there still seems to be, and I've seen this too, there still seems to be a gap with some of the actual getting into the whole understanding all the semantics and the context of language, unless you're actually in country. You can learn a lot, but oh, it's different, man. right, than being actually in country and Super. The, the idiosyncrasies and the, the differences, yeah. right? I have to share this story with you because uh, within, I think, a couple of weeks of being in Mexico, they tell me, hey, you got to go over to CISEN. CISEN is like their CIA over there. And you're going to give them a human trafficking con- uh, briefing training to these high level military people. And they need to know about human trafficking. And you're going to do it in Spanish. And I've never done it in Spanish. And oh, my goodness. And we do, exactly to your point, it's a very different. I'm not a native Spanish speaker. And I told them uh, at the very beginning, listen, my Spanish is pretty decent, but I'm not a native speaker. And so I do my thing. And uh, of course, they, they understand me and it's all good. But then I get that challenge question from a high level a government official. Uh, a female tells, ask me a question. She asked me a question in Spanish and I had no idea what she said. That's high, how high level she used the Spanish. And I looked at her like, 
what? <laughs> you know, like like a little puppy. Yeah. <laughs> so I kept you to say, and, you know, that is an interesting question. Let me work on that, and I'll get back to so you. So she had to. So what she did is she dumbed it down. Yeah. And then when she dumbed it down, I was like, oh, got it. Oh, you know, you're talking about putting people in jail. Oh, okay, yeah. You know, when she dumbed it down, did she speak louder and yell at you? <laughs> Almost. She looked at me like, you idiot. And I, and I said, listen, I told you. I told you. You know, do you get those challenges all the time? I mean, I got those challenges from the government of Mexico all the time. I, do a, I spoke before the Mexican Senate on human trafficking. And the number one question, the first question from one of the Mexican senators is, why is the United States continue to be the number one consumer of drugs? Hell, man, we're not talking about that today. Yeah. And, and we know that's true, right? Yes, yes, we know we're the number one consumer. And oh. and then question number two, um, why does the United States continue to send the firearms to the, oh, here we go. Oh. We're talking about human trafficking, yeah. people, yeah. please. But always, always, you know, he had to deal with the political parts of it and the challenges uh, as, as you get faced with all this stuff. But... Um, it, it, one thing I want before we move on to that part too, tell us about things were sent. You were talking about there's a lot of sensitive things down there. You actually had to get snuck into a facility to interview a special interest alien. So let's talk about that for a second because why are they sneaking you in? You could pass for one of the locals. So why are they sure. sneaking you in? And who was this well, SIA? So, uh, first of all, there's a bunch of SIAs, it wasn't just one. And they, we were trying to do an op. And, you know, and I'll tell you the term uh, that we laughed at in Mexico. We are non-operational. And I'm doing air quotes. We are non-operational in Mexico. And then everybody would in the office, hey, I'm leaving to be non-operational. <laughs> okay, go be non-operational. Yeah. Because we have no authority as U.S. diplomats in Mexico. It's all through the host government by my office being the way they were wanted us to be present at these, uh, and, and, and Murph could talk about this a lot more because... Oh, yeah, because Murph was told never to leave the base, and <laughs> <laughs> we just viewed how that well as did a that strong, work out? Yeah. We viewed that as a strong suggestion. We didn't. And so, um, <laughs> yes, we were on there on the ground. My goodness, we were on the ground. And one of these things that they wanted, we wanted to get access to these guys to talk to them, the SIAs, and uh, that area where the where the facility was is down the more of the heart of Mexico City. Remember, Mexico City is huge, mm -hmm. 22 million people. And I wanted to be out there, like walk in the in the people. And they said, you're nuts. You're crazy. They'll single you out in half a second. And I go, even the way I look, I look Mexican national. It didn't matter. The way you dress, mm -hmm. the way you move, where you walk. Forget the way you speak Spanish. I mean, I would get in a cab in Mexico City, and the cab would say, Buenos dias. And I would say, uh, ¿A dónde vas? Like, where are you going? Buenos dias, aeropuerto. And the second word from him is, oh, you're from the north. What the heck? That's that's how heavy my accent was? Did I say, el aeropuerto? <laughs> you know, it's not like I said it that way. Like, I'm from Monterey or Chihuahua. But that's how quickly they recognize your accent. Wow. And, and so these guys in Mexico are like, that's not going to happen. But what we're going to do is you're going to come in with us, whatever I could tell you there, and gain access to this facility. And I had a translator, and there I am in front of them, one at a time, from Bangladesh, Somalia, Afghanistan, Pakistan. Why were you interviewing them? Were they, was their ultimate destination the United States? Yes. And the, the reason is for to try to get some intel because the Mexican government eventually was going to release them. And this is the problem that, that, that we have in Mexico is that they're going to release them. Remember, these individuals are also illegally present in Mexico. Mm -hmm. 
yet you would think Mexico is going to deport them, repatriate them, kind of like what ICE does in the U.S. No. They still give out the slip that I'm talking about, by the way. Yeah, I promise, to a, I promise to leave the country in 30 days. 30 days. How, how well does that work? It does not. Three days later, they're in Tijuana asking for asylum yeah, it's a joke. in our border. It's a joke. And by the way, the name and the date of birth, hmm, they're not the same. Hmm. What happened here? Well, all of a sudden, it was, a one, it was one individual down in Tapachula. It's the second individual in Mexico City, and it's the third individual in Texas or California. Did you have any biometrics compare against them? Did yes. they collect fingerprints and stuff? We started, we started a program with uh, biometrics and, and uh, IRS scanners. Uh, I started that program in Panama and started taking those. Uh, those this, they were pretty bulky, the first ones, to take them down to Guatemala. And, and we're trying to identify them down there you know, before they came in, but we knew they were going to come in. And yeah, we, we started sending these portable scanners to at least know that, oh, okay, you know, Muhammad whatever is still Muhammad whatever up here. Right. Uh, trying to get some, you know, fingerprints, uh, at least a couple of fingerprints and, this, and the iris scan. Just a quick divergent story, but I was doing some work, but the FBI started creating this thing they called server in the sky, but they started treating the IED explosions and the, and the sites over in Afghanistan and Iraq like crime scenes. They started going in and collecting bomb material and fingerprints. And they started collecting fingerprints and they stopped this guy. And you can, you folks can look this up. Uh, the dirt farmer from Tikrit, they stopped this dirt farmer from Tikrit, literally a dirt farmer, run his fingerprints he has got 10 felony arrests in the United States. Yep. I Damn. mean, and if, pe if people only knew, and see, that that's the thing, is once you start comparing things like, you know, now they've got it, a guy, buddy who works for a company that they do the iris scanning, but it's now down to the size of an iPhone, basically. You can take an right. iPhone, scan that's stuff. It's an app. Yeah. And it's an yeah, app. It, yeah. This is literally within the last 10 years of how it's changed, but... Um, this is a national security issue, right? It's a public safety issue for the United States, and it's been ongoing for a long time. And, and the problem is that I wasn't successful at all, really, in getting any information. They would not talk. And I'm a pretty decent interrogator. These guys would say nothing. Once in a while, I get them going to New York. That's it. I could not get them. And it was harder with the interpreter mm -hmm. and, and to try to get the questionings. And you can't, you know, as a, an interrogator, you have to use certain tones, certain levels of voice. And you lose and a lot things. when you have to go through you an interpreter. You lose a lot with interpreter, yeah. the pause. Yep. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't function well. The techniques don't function well. But anyway, yeah, these, they're there. Believe me, they're there and they've been there. And they've uh, established these communities in Mexico because not all of them left. And not all, not all of them came into the U.S., They've stayed in Mexico. They've built communities. They built their mosques, and they have stayed there for whatever reason. And right now, there's even more so coming because they see uh, the opportunity to be able to come in. And so, like you said earlier, some might just to be to gain access, others possibly to cause us harm. Part of it, yeah. And I'll tell you one of the things they started doing too. You know, when they started interviewing people for their visas to come into the U.S. and they started tightening the restrictions. I know some people said, because you go in there, you'd fingerprint them. They said, well, how do you know that's their true identity? Maybe you don't, but here's the one thing. Once you, once you can collect that now and assign it to a person, they can use any name they want. But now we know what name you're using. And if you change your name, we know, okay, you use name A. Over here, you're using name B. Doesn't matter, because now we've got the fingerprint or the biometric that can now tie you back to that passport, back to that visa. And we may not know who exactly who you are, but we know you are the same person that tried it here and tried it there. That's right. And on top of that is DNA testing. And uh, 
DNA testing for several reasons. One, for the children, what's going on, but DNA testing, uh, DNA samples of these individuals, because then we find out because sometimes other, other biometrics don't work, but blood works you know, all the time. Oh, this guy has been arrested. He's wanted in Chicago or whatever, Wisconsin. Or, and the number of people getting arrested that uh, the, the Customs and, and the Border Patrol, I'm sorry, folks that are arresting that are you know, illegal aliens unlawfully reentering the country. They've been deported Oof. for sex crimes, for crimes against children, for homicide. You know, it's just, it's amazing the number of people coming back that have already committed f several felonies in the United States. We call them prior deports and they are coming back. Uh, a police, uh, 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 an illegal alien that killed a police officer in 1993 in Texas was just caught trying to come back. A guy with an open warrant in Dallas uh, for sexual assault of a child, caught. Thank goodness these were caught, but keep in mind. Well, how many get we're, through, we're though? For everyone you catch, how many for are getting through? For every warrant, two to three. That's, that, these are from my Border Patrol people that I talk to, my friends. Two to three. So if, you know, the stat is 1.7 million, I just right there, double it. That means two to three million are getting in. That's minimum, double. Minimum, yeah. Maybe even more. So I think, you know, this number of the last year is close to four or five million. Jeez. Well, look, we could go down the bunny hole on that one. Yes. Let's get back to your story here for... Um, at what point, at some point, uh, you know, and obviously we, we talk about there's going to be a shooting involved coming up here. How far into your tour before you were involved in that shooting? Right about the two year, uh, a little bit before the two year mark. So let's talk about the, the let's let's start setting the context for that as well, too, because I want to hear about your partner. I want to hear about the context. So what kind of things did they start having you get involved with and who was your partner and when did you guys end up being assigned together? We, we, I met uh, Special Agent Jaime Zapata on, on February 14th, 2011. So next month will be the 11th year anniversary um, that I met him. The shooting happened the following day. Uh, so you'd only known just... him, you'd, only, you'd known him basically less than 24 to 48 hours. Correct. Correct. He had, he had just come in the country relieving and replacing other TDY agents that we had coming in from the Laredo office on a big arms trafficking case because we were so understaffed and there was this huge case, a uh, really good case for arms trafficking that we went up on a wire and other things that we just didn't have the manpower that we could help them with. So we said, okay, the Laredo agents are going to come in on TDY and they're going to be, you know, every third, I think there was doing 60 to 90 days, two agents at a time rotating, boom, boom, working their own case. And we would just help them out with whatever logistics they needed in the, in the country. Jaime was one of those agents that had just come in starting his TDY the week before. I was out the week before. I was in Denver, Arizona. I came in to my apartment on February 14th at 1 a.m. Uh, from, from, that, from that trip. And I went into the office at 9 a.m. on Valentine's Day to go work. My whole... Uh, agenda for that week was to stay in the office and do all my administrative paperwork. Remember, we have to write everything down. We have to write reports. Well, I mean, paperwork is, is the, uh, if you could just get rid of paperwork, we could do a whole lot more law enforcement. <laughs> yes. I had a lot of paperwork to do and a lot of computer work to do. And so that was my, uh, my goal for that week. And of course I had my plans with my wife for Valentine's evening. And right about noon, one of my coworkers gives me the heads up and said, Hey, they're going to send you to Monterey. And I fucking flip my top. And I say it to you that way because that's what I did. Mm -hmm. now how, I'm like, what the, how far is Monterey what the hell's going on? How far is Monterey from Mexico City? 
about eleven hour drive. Oh my gosh! You're gonna drive it? <laughs> yes, on Highway 57, which the ambassador just three weeks before had sent out an alert saying you're prohibited mm -hmm. from driving on Highway 57 for whatever reason, for personal reason or business reason. You cannot go on there. Why? Because the Zetas control that area. We knew it. I knew it. What the heck do you do? We do in Mexico. We we obtain intelligence, and all the intelligence is saying. Get the hell out of that road. Don't go on that road. That's the main corridor from Mexico City up to Texas through Monterey. Well, well how the and, hell were you supposed to get there then? Were they going to, I mean, the only other way to get there, obviously, then is to fly. Fly. And that's that's the way we, so that was my, nat so remember, I, I have no idea what this assignment is about. It gets thrown on me. It gives me the heads up on noon. I come back from lunch in Mexico City, which is about two o'clock, come back about three I'm in the office. My supervisor calls me to, to his office, and the official assignment comes in and says, Victor, I need you to take the TD wire. And he's referring to Jaime Zapata. And you guys are going to go drive and go get some equipment and pick it up from um, the our counterparts from the Monterey office, the ICE office. Our agents apparently had picked up some boxes from Texas. They have them in Monterey. And you guys are going to meet somewhere in the middle and go exchange the equipment. Go pick it up from them. And I'm thinking... What? No, no briefing, no, no nothing. I mean, so you're just you going up understand. there to pick equipment up. That's it. No operation. Yeah. No, no, no. We're not doing law enforcement operation. Just go. They want that equipment here tomorrow. Right. Stat. Okay. Well, I worked there almost two years in, in Mexico. I know uh, actually almost two years because I had already been in Juarez and I'm thinking, uh, where's my escort? Where's the operational plan that we usually do? Where's the extra team? Where's the Mexican military? Where's the, the Mexican federal police? I need a lot of time to get this ready. I, you know, this is, it's four o'clock and I, and you want me to go tomorrow morning. Well, I got a question for you. If, if the ambassador look, and we've had these discussions with other people too, with Murph, with Zach, um, with JP, you know, all, all of these, the episodes we've done, the ambassador, you know, and folks have heard us talk about this. They represent the president of the United States in the country. They are basically the ultimate authority in that country. If the ambassador has said, stay off route 57, I got a question for you. Then what the hell how the hell did you end up on Route 57? Well, the number one word I could answer with that is incompetence by my supervisors and and other things. They um, they had to be aware of the same order too, right? Everybody course. knew, right? We all were. I mean, this this email went out. I have a copy of it here. We this email went out to all U.S. personnel. We knew it. I talked to. The, by the way, then I challenged the assignment with my supervisor, and I tell him, "Listen, what the hell's going on here? Let's call." My friend in in Monterey, boom, right there we call him in Monterey. What's going on? And he says, yeah, there's a lot of scrimmages on the highway between the setas, the police, and the military. It's hot, Victor. There's we're having a lot of scrimmages between firefights between. Okay, I'm I'm on the phone listening. My supervisor, we're on speakerphone. I said, okay, so why don't we dip pouch this? Dip pouch is a diplomatic pouch that would come in a secure vehicle, quote unquote secure. Or why don't we fly it in? Why don't we fly the equipment in? Bring it over by helicopter. Bring it over by airplane. There's all these options that you could bring these boxes into the country. Why do we have to actually physically go pick them up? What was the operation going on that was so urgent and so important that you had to have it? I mean, you positively had to have it overnight. That's a FedEx thing. I mean, what was going on that made it so important that, that this is the only place you could get the equipment from and it had to be there tomorrow or the world was going to end? Operation Pacific Rim. 
the biggest money laundering case in the history of the U.S. Customs Service, ICE, whatever. This is a big case out of Colombia, and Colombia was the, the lead case on this money laundry case. Mexico came into this case because we seized $40 million in cash in a container. Boom. Mexico, ICE, Mexico City is in the game. We're part of this case, and my supervisors are foaming at the mouth because of it. It's a big, big case. It's got... It's got the people up there in Washington looking at it. Oh, it's got promotion it. written all over These are, yeah. it. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, making case. That, yeah. I'm, I'm, uh, it's kind of weird that you you, uh, you use those terms because I, it didn't matter. They they still got promoted, but they uh, yeah they definitely clouded their 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 decision making ability. Incompetence is still there, but I'll tell you something that they did. They, my supervisors there had the inability to say I don't know. And I was taught early on as a United States probation officer by a U.S. district judge that it's very, very important to know and to say that you don't know when you don't know. Right. Even if you're the special agent, even if you're the architect, even if you're the teacher, even if you're the banker and you're supposed to know, it's, a, it's very important for you to be able to say you don't know. And it takes a lot. It takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of balls to say I don't know, but you know what? I'll find out. And, that, and that's the answer right there. But if, if you can't, if you would, before we go any further, who are Los Zetas? What, what do you yeah. talk about when you talk about them? Los Zetas cartel are a probably the most vicious cartel that came about. These guys were ex-paramilitary guys trained. You know, the, I read around their history. Uh, some were trained by the U.S., but they originated in Guatemala. The original, original guys originated from Guatemala. They became uh, enforcers of the Gulf Cartel. And these guys worked uh, as basically as security for the Gulf Cartel. They became so, so powerful, they branched out to their, own, to their own cartel. The difference with the Setas is they brought a different level of violence. These are the guys that you start seeing the beheadings, the, the, the skinning of people's faces and, and, you know, you know, all these craziness, chopping people up and, uh, uh, bombs and, and, and grenades, a different level. These are the setas and that, that level of terror that they instilled, not just on the, the community in Mexico, but the police force and the, and the military, they, they grew in power and they had a lot of power. And this was 2011 were probably at the height, at the height of their of their control there. And they had that control of that corridor in Highway 57, which was the town of San Luis Potosí. San Luis Potosí, by the city, the same name of the state, was under control of the cartel. You know, when you hear in the news, uh, Syria has this area, ISIS has this area under control. Well, that's the way the Zetas had right. this. The Zetas had the control of that town. So they, they brought in a, a, a military precision of organization and discipline. And the weapons were probably higher grade than what the other cartels were, or you guys were typically running into at that time, right? That's right, Murph. These guys were highly trained in uh, military tactics. These are not guys, these are not, uh, you know, guys, hey, let's go, we're not a, they're not a street gang, I'll tell you that. It's these not a bunch of rednecks getting together and no, saying, come on, Cooter, no. hold my beer, let's go do something. Yeah. These folks no, were no. as close to professional soldiers probably right. as you could get for what's going on. And the, and the organization, uh, and, and I'll talk a little, bit, a little bit later about it when they testified in, in the trial, uh, the level of sophistication is incredible. You'd be surprised. I was even surprised 
uh, of the level of sophistication that the organization had. I'm talking about a hierarchy like a corporation, yeah. the boss, the president, down to the soldiers. And except that they, their, their job is extortion, kidnapping, murder, drug, drug trafficking. Pharmaceutical companies happen to do other, other things. Same thing. I mean, if you look at it, Amazon, I compare them to Amazon a lot. Highly sophisticated, highly organized distribution centers. Da, da, da. Same thing, except they they work in different aspects of criminal activity. Wow. Um, and that and that 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 time we knew that we we knew we, there wasn't a surprise when the when the alert came out. We're like, thank goodness the alert came out because nobody should be driving on mm -hmm. this road. We used to drive on that road all the time. That's how we escorted people out, our, our agents out of the country. That's where we went to go pick up. Uh, when we picked up the brand new armored Suburbans, we flew in, drove drove them down. You should have seen what we did when we when we called everybody when we went to go pick up five brand new suburbans and that's this is the one where we had the shooting. Um, we called we called we called the good guys. We called the bad guys. We called the state police. We got the federal police. We got the military. We called the cartels. We called called, called everyone and said we're going to be driving in five highly visible suburbans that are armored from the border of Texas down to Mexico City and we're not there for you. There's no operation. There's no anything. We're just driving through. You know, and it took a lot of coordination to do that, so we won't get oh attacked my God, by the cartel. What, Murph, I'm, you're, I'm sitting here looking. My jaw's dropping. What does it say that when you got to negotiate and you got to uh, coordinate your activities with the cartels? Right. Who does that say is running the country? We all know. We all know who's running Mexico. It's no secret, and it just gets worse and worse. You know, they, even and that's this is ten years ago. And that's even more so now. Oh yeah, you got now they've got they got it. They, oh my god, they're running their own parallel, own parallel government. Well, you got the guy down there now wants to hold hands and sing songs. We're not going to put anybody in jail, and, in Mexico. And give them hugs. Yeah, and how well, we can hug bullets. our way out of it. Oh, hey, right. Quick question right. for you too on this, because um, we're talking about uh, you know uh, that's a great question too from Murph too about you know let's start setting the context um, for the Las Zetas. Why, you know, what the day we're recording this is one day after the anniversary of the Challenger disaster, because um, we're recording this on January 29th, and the shooting is going to be February 15th. So this is going to come out Monday, uh, the February 14th. So, you know, in advance of that. So there's some anniversaries, but the lesson, it, it just seems to me that everybody wanting to get you on Highway 57 or Route 57, is it Route or Highway 57? Highway. They call it a highway, but it's not a highway. It's actually like an interstate. It's, it's an interstate? It's, it's the toll road. It's the safe road. Well, it's well, allegedly the safe road. But allegedly, you know, the, yeah. the problem, the, it's like with the Challenger too. Everybody ignored the red flags. Everybody had go fever. Everybody says, oh, that's okay. We'll be fine. And then what happened was, speaking of being cold, it got so cold, it contracted the O-rings around the solid rocket booster, which were made by a company called Morton Thiokol. How do I know? Because one of the guys I went to school with was an engineer at Morton Thiokol. And so when that took off, it allowed the gas to, ex to escape out the O-rings and blew the thing up. And, but you know what? Everybody ignored the red flags. And this is what just gets me is how could they ignore the red flags with all of this activity going on, what Los Zetas were doing? You know, how, what, you know, it just tells me what's more important to people is getting that promotion. Like you said, Steve, the career case, getting yep. that career case yep. than it is taking care of the safety of your own uh, agents. You know what? And, and let me just say right now, when you're doing that, you are not a fucking leader. That's not what a leader does. You've got to look out for your people, especially if you're in a war zone like that. That's got to be your priority. What a, you know, and I know you called this guy Blue 52 in the book. Yeah. I mean, he sounds like just a first grade horse's ass. 
he he just did not know. Uh, they just you know, and 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 I'm saying, listen, people get put in different positions for whatever reason because you're friends with whatever, whatever. Who I'm not, I actually don't have a problem with that. I just rather you say when you get to that position, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. I'm gonna ask somebody. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. All right. I will tell you. We'll tell you how it rolls here in Mexico. Yep. We'll tell you how it rolls, and and you cooperate with us. We'll 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 let you. But don't come in here pretending that you know how to do it and run the show. What happens is you, you get an agent killed in the line of duty because you pretend to know. So and not only did you have the inability to say you don't know, now you're pretending to know and making decisions on your pretending. Oh, my God, that's a deadly combination. Yeah, and, and well, as we've seen, and you're getting ready to tell us about this. Oh, my God. This, uh, yes. Hey, sorry. So let's start <clears throat> setting the context for that now. So, I mean, the 14th comes and goes. Basically, I mean, do you get the chance to go out to uh, Valentine's dinner with your wife? Do you get to have any family time? No, it, it, it ruins the plans. I, I meet Special Agent Jaime Zapata that afternoon. We exchange numbers. I asked him, come come to my apartment tomorrow morning at 6.30 so we could take off. And um, this is, by the way, we skipped, a, there was a lot of challenges. And uh, Murph uh, alleviated to the, the fact that uh, I asked my supervisor to call the deputy attache, which is su- his supervisor, get him out of the office and tell him, listen, these are the, this is all the intelligence we're hearing. We're telling you this is not right. He came out and said, and I quote, I have no, I have, uh, I'm not, I'm unaware of any security issues in the country of Mexico. Yeah, heaven forbid, I call, heaven forbid he calls the RSO. Blue 52, the deputy attache, I'm unaware of any security issues in Mexico. Now, <laughs> it's Mexico. I'm standing five feet from him. How in the hell do you say that when the whole country, right? Murph, it's the whole country Absolutely. is a security issue. It's a critical level four given that score by the State Department, just like Baghdad. Yeah. Well, that or, you know, Afghanistan sitting in Kabul going, I'm unaware of any terrorists operating in the country of Afghanistan. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Well, dude, you are one fucking clueless hot dog, you was know. It, yes. was, uh, what, did he come up through immigration or did he come out of customs? Or do you know? Uh, you know, I think he might have come up through customs. I'm not sure. But he worked at the airport in uh, in New York. Well, and he never left the airport. Yeah. And so that, tell me, that tells yeah. me something. Yeah, let's not skip over a lot of the stuff. But the reason I was just trying to do is just trying to set it in context now. Yeah. So here, here's the question I have. Um, what would have happened if you would have used that email from the ambassador to basically say, F you, I'm not going there? Um, I mean, it, this is I'm not talking about, you know, armchair quarterbacking. I'm just saying is that. Right. I think people need to understand the immense pressure you guys were under to right. make cases and do stuff, you know, and why it just yes. was. Because uh, there's going to be some armchair quarterback out there, some what I call swivel chair a commando. Lot. Oh, there's a lot. Why didn't you do this? <laughs> why didn't you do that? Well, why yeah. don't you hop your happy ass and drive down to Mexico City and do the job I did and then make that same decision, right? So Correct. Uh, what I wanted folks to understand is that one of the things you had to worry about was retribution. Uh, I'd be curtailed. I'd be sent home. And and that's it. Simple as that. I'd be fired from the country and I have to figure out how to live somewhere in the United States. And I have a, a wife and kids to think about. And keep in mind, I'm being ordered here by my superiors. Uh, I would then become in, insubordinate. There's a lot of issues in, in, in the government. You have the chain of command. And if I'm ignoring the chain of command, I'm being insubordinate. I'm not following orders. And I had already done and challenged as much as I could. I I basically made my, my line supervisor, which is kind of rare, to go knock on the door and get that supervisor. Technically, I didn't even his word was the last word. But I, I didn't I didn't care what his word was. I said, you gotta go to the deputy attache, which came from the attache, and the order came from them. And when you order, you're ordered. 
at that point, I had exhausted all of it. See, and people need to understand, too, even if you win, you lose, right? Because yep. you, it's hard to fight the bureaucracy. It's hard to fight because they've got this gamed out, you know, at certain levels. They've got it gamed out. So, I mean, you're, you're having to put all this stuff together, like you say, no op plan, no security. I mean, what is it? Is it just you and Jaime and that's it? Are you that's even, it. Do you even get to drive one of your fancy new Suburbans up there? So, yeah, I get to go in my Suburban that's issued to me. That's why I wanted him to, to come to my apartment because I live north of the city to avoid the traffic in the morning. And another agent said, I'll take him to your apartment, Victor, and you guys could take off from there. So, uh, you know, I go home late, miss the 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 celebration with my wife. But I'll tell you, it. Uh, it's kind of, you look back, and I wrote about this in the books. I think it was important. My kids, when I got home, my wife had brought in the food from the restaurant. It was a sushi restaurant that we were going to have dinner. She had it delivered, and my kids are the ones that then um, became the servers for us. And they set up the table in their apartment, and they, oh. they didn't break they didn't break rule. They're like, yeah. you know, good evening, Miss Robbie. I'll come this way. Yeah. And uh, I always get, you know, I get these goosebumps when I talk about that because uh, I almost lost my lap the following day thinking that would have been the last. The last supper. It could have been. Time I see them, but. Yeah. No, it's, it's fine. It's the, we make so many sacrifices for our family. Right. And, it, and it's really, and so, I love the story in the book because it's pretty cool. You come to the door and there's your son standing there with a, uh, a napkin draped over his arm. And yeah. Your, your table. Yeah. Like, maitre d', yes. <laughs> yes, yes. And it was an incredible evening, an incredible evening. And uh, I get up in the morning, I, I take off and my daughter, I went and gave her a kiss and she gets, uh, she's awake and she tells me, you're going out of town again. And I lied to her. I said, no, mm-hmm. no, no, no. Um, I'll be right back because I was, my, my mind, I'm going to go and come back the same day. Yeah. So you're just going to go drive up six hours, meet somebody basically halfway, turn around and come back, right? Some, <clears> something so, like yeah, that. So about a, yeah, about a, well, six and six, about 12 hours more or less. Yeah. yeah. Um, and she saw me, she's like, but you're not wearing a suit. Cause she knew when I wore a suit, I was going to the embassy. And when I did not wear a suit, I was traveling. And she's like, you're not wearing a suit. I said, no, I don't have to wear a suit today. Um, I'll be right back. I'll be back today. Um, and, and then Jaime shows up right at 630 and we take off. And Jaime and I hit it off. He's an incredible, incredible uh, human being. I didn't, know, I didn't know him. But you could have, you, you wouldn't have known that, that I had just met him because we talked about everything and anything that you can imagine. I mean, personal stuff. Yeah. He shared his life with me. He shared his career with me. He shared intimate uh, details about what he wanted to do in his career and with his uh, girlfriend. And, you know, he was younger than me. I wasn't much older than him, but I kind of felt like a bit of a mentor there as mm-hmm. I told him, well, this is the way I did it. We're both from border towns. And we're both, uh, you know, have that background. He's trying to strive to do better in his career. I'm already there. This is the way I did it. And plus, uh, he uh, gets a call during the during the drive from one, from one of the ports of entries in Laredo where he has one of his seizures. And he says, hey, we caught one of your cars here that's loaded. And I knew at that time that he was just like me. He was working beyond the bag and tag cases. Right, right. This guy's a worker. And I liked him, and he, he, he could just see his smile in his face when he tells the, the, the dispatch, our, our sector says, uh, I'm unable to respond because I'm an assignment in Mexico. And he was so proud of that, that he was in Mexico and serving there. And he told me about his barbecuing. He told me about his, uh, the fishing. Whew, it was incredible, incredible as we drove on that road. Well, he's TDY, so he doesn't have diplomatic status. Only you do at that point, right? 
That's right. He's only there on a red passport, which is what we call an official passport. Mm. So uh, you guys are like brothers from a different mother. You guys hit it off, right? Um, That's a great way to put it. Yeah. Um, and you're in this, but th- now is the suburban you're in? Is that one of the five that was brought down, or is this a yes? Okay. So it's a newer, it's a newer suburban. It's a 2009 uh, Chevy suburban. Level four, whatever that means, you know, there's so many levels yeah. and this and that, but it's it's a very well fortified, uh, very heavy uh, armored vehicle. It weighs. It's about five miles tons. to the gallon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's another thing. We have to stop and pump gas all the time. Doors are very heavy. It has two doors in the back. Your traditional hatchback door plus an additional armored door that that opens like a traditional door. Um, I mean, you close that door on your on your hand, oh, you chop yeah. it off. That's how. The, and it doesn't have it doesn't have the hinge like a regular door. It has like this extra heavy duty type of, uh, I don't even know what kind of material that they use, but it doesn't even have the handle that a door has where you put your hand in to close the door. It, it's sealed. It actually has a an industrial black handle where you grab the door. That's how heavy it is. And, and to slam it shut, but it's super quiet in there. And, um, you know, so that's where we're driving. That's, that's where you, they wanted all our family in that car all the time. It, this is very different than stateside. In stateside, you can't be using your G-Ride right. to take your kids to school. Yeah. But in Mexico, they're like, you better put your kids in the armored vehicle. Not just because, we're not, we're not worried about cartel violence here. We're talking about carjackers and, right. and all these other crime in Mexico City. It's a crime ridden Yeah, where well, you're city. not being targeted because they don't really, they may or may not know you're American. You're being targeted because you got a decent vehicle. You got a nice vehicle. They think you got money. And, you know, mm-hmm. here's the other, here's the other um, little thing too. And it's a fallacy. People think about these armored vehicles. Folks, I got to tell you, you can't roll down the windows on an armored vehicle. If, if the fucking yeah. AC goes out in there, you're just going to toast, man. There is no rolling <laughs> down windows. On those there's there's an ability, and I'll, and I'll talk a little bit about how there's a they roll down very little, yeah, very little, and um, and that's 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 the detriment to our to our case here because um, that's exactly what happened in this case. The so we go we uh, hey, we're on, driving before we get there, Steve. I know you had a quick insight there. Yeah does does Jaime realize the potential danger of going down Highway 57? I mean, he's a TD wire coming down from the states. Probably a first no. timer, right? First timer, he, he really, he's never briefed. Uh, I had never been briefed. Mm. <laughs> this, by the way, they had made these arrangements back in December. And this, and this is, is February. This is February. Wow. And I was never privy to any email. I was never CC'd on any email. I was never told any of this until hours literally before the assignment, which, you know, that's very wrong in law enforcement. Absolutely. You have to have Absolutely. your ducks in a row and have all that set up. And plus, he's, he's so not. If I didn't know, forget Jaime. Jaime was even less. He was just like, Go help Victor drive, basically. Go, you know, go help him because it's a long drive. And he's not issued any weapons. He's not carrying long guns. No. I mean, he doesn't even have no. a pistol. Hey, players, this is the end of part one, Victor Avala and the Highway of Death. Coming up in part two, we're going to get to the rest of the story, the shooting, all the other details. And in fact, in this second part, you're going to hear information Victor has never disclosed before anywhere to anybody that's going to be a game changer in terms of this episode. So stay tuned for part two coming out Thursday, Victor Avila and the Highway of Death. In the meantime, go visit us on the socials at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram, and go visit us on Patreon. 
patreon.com slash game of crimes. We have a ton of great content. In fact, one of our new segments called 911, What's Your Emergency? Where I surprise Murph with a 911 call. We figure out, is it real? Is it deceptive? You know, and what's the story behind it? That's been one of our most popular episodes so far. So go check us out. Patreon.com slash game of crimes. In the meantime, stay safe. We'll see you on part two. Thank you.